Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast Edition. Thank you very much for listening. It's a small studio today, just Sabina, I, and Alex, but we have extra fun. So you get less hosts and more of us. Hope you enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed doing today's show, and it's good to be more or less back. This is Darren, of course. Uh, just a reminder, of course, as you can, we would really be able to appreciate uh, some help if you're able to. Even a dollar, which is the minimum uh, to be a member, is super helpful because it helps defer costs from our website. It helps us get some better equipment, which I'm starting to desperately need at this point. Um, if you listened to last week's bonus show, you may have noticed that, uh, or at least tried to listen to it and stopped it probably because it was, uh, the sound quality was extremely bad. Uh, you can go to patron P A T R E O N.com slash green majority sign up, be a member, help support the show. And there will be more coming soon, uh, about all that stuff, but, uh, it will not change, uh, the fact that you should go and be a member today. So aside from that, see you soon. Enjoy the show. And welcome. It's the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. For those of you who can tell the difference, because Ken Stower, the station manager, has told me repeatedly he can't tell the difference between Stefan and mine's voice, this is Darren Kaster back in the host chair this week. Uh, a, because I'm feeling a bit better, and B, also because Stefan is away. So uh, that's convenient. It's actually a bit of an empty studio today. I have just the really hardcore volunteers here with me this week. Stefan's away. I don't know. I think he's like a Canada's Wonderland or something. Um... Uh, M.A., of course, is off saving the world. Uh, Deirdre is doing something super important. I can't remember exactly what she said. <laughs> she's probably also saving the she's world, or Vancouver. she's with Stefan at Canada's Wonderland. <laughs> what are you, uh, Van- Vancouver. All right. Let's not, let's not you know, give away too much of her privacy. I'm sure she's doing something very important. Uh, but we do have uh, the super hardcore dedicated uh, Alex uh, Ritchie, who's in there in the tech uh, room uh, as well on the board. Uh, we'll be jumping in occasionally to help support uh, as well. Uh, and Sabina Haseni, who's also sitting in studio with me here across the table as well. They're going to be jumping in a fair bit throughout the program today as we talk a little bit about a few things. I have reserved a good news more or less section at the end of the program. For So for those of you who... Uh, need a little pick me up. There's like some sort of good news, um, in that qualifier sort of way that like everything we say on the show that's good news always has an asterisk next to it. Um, but th- you know, within the parameters of what's normal for this program, there's good news section at the end. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're also going to be talking about um some non-oil things. I've specifically grouped those for the middle section of the program. As well, we have uh, there's some uh, reporting uh, that's being done on uh, Ontario's climate change plan. There's some uh, interesting, uh, um, somewhat terrifying uh, uh, overview, uh, something I was more or less aware of, but I think that uh, we haven't spoken about in quite some time. So uh, we'll bring up again on the program about uh, Canada's regulatory agencies, Health Canada uh, specifically, and uh, cosmetics as well. So this includes uh, both uh, cosmetic cosmetics and just like you know body products in general. Uh, not great, but of course we're going to start with what else? Oil. So um, there's a, four things I want to run through here uh, quickly. One of them, let's touch on uh, Fort McMurray um, just really quickly because there's just a small sort of addition to that story. So 
Uh, it's been all of the news, and of course, we've been talking about it as well, that there was, of course, a massive fire. If you've not heard about this massive fire, you've been under a rock, and uh, just go back in the program. I'm not going to, you know, or read any newspaper for the past month, um, and we won't review that. However, there is uh, new information, new information coming out, uh, which, again, if you're familiar with these types of topics and you've been covering this for a while, you will not be surprised, but some sort of more casual observers or new uh, listeners to this program may not realize that uh, in some cases, depending on where you are, frequently after a major fire, uh, major fires remove, of course, what a, uh, a lot of ground cover. So it removes a lot of brush, it removes a lot of things with roots, it removes a lot of trees, basically a lot of things that hold soil still. Um, and this is one of those other consequences, whether we lose them to fire or lose them to bugs or lose them to climate change, uh, land use uh, issues, and particularly things like mudslides can in fact be uh, correlated and uh, have a, a causal relationship with uh, fires and uh, global warming changes in general. So what we're looking at now is that up to 66 millimeters of rain uh, expected in the Fort McMurray area could now result in uh, washed out uh, rivers and creeks and culverts, uh, potentially disastrous uh, uh, erosion of soil, damaging the trees that haven't burned down, and of course, uh, danger to humans, both through uh, damaged or collapsing buildings. So again, ones that haven't already been uh, destroyed by fire, uh, but could also just uh, create, you know, uh, mudslides, terrible road conditions, uh, other dangerous uh, impacts. So not a lot of news there as far as, um, you know, as far as like a development, nothing has happened, but we're anticipating more things to happen. And just more because like, you know, as the flashy images of the flames, um, stop being so readily available. So a lot of the time, these news stories will in fact leave the front page of the paper and be relegated to later sections of the paper or uh, disappear entirely. And uh, this is not a quick cleanup, as it were, which uh, provides me a segue to my next story. But I want to offer uh, any chance to jump in before I move on here. No, we're good. Okay, so we're moving on. So uh, the next thing was, uh, there was a, a good article and I actually saw, I think somebody was doing some, uh, some tagline borrowing here um, because I saw a number of articles that had very similar, um, from different sources that had very similar titles, uh, which would make sense except for this title, which was, uh, bet you didn't hear about a bunch of shell oil spills in the Gulf last month. Um, so regardless of the uh, overlap, uh, so, you know, someone must have done a report and a bunch of other news agencies picked it up and, and were, none of them were terribly creative with their, with their news headlines. Uh, the point of the article and why it was interesting though, was that, uh, something, and, and again, we've taught, this is something that happens a lot, but you know, as I just said with the last story, something we've talked about before, but have, doesn't come up all the time, uh, was there's actually a threshold. A lot of people don't know. And I, and I know that a lot of many do, but I know a lot of activists aren't even super clear on what happens when oil spills. Um, so there's a couple of really important things. Um, it's a short read. It's a good read. I recommend, uh, pulling it up. We'll of course link to it in the show notes after the program. Um, but I will just highlight a couple of interesting points here, which is that first of all, there is no, I don't know if you know this, um, we don't have sky yet, uh, Skynet yet. So computers don't know everything automatically. So how do we find out about an oil spill? That's a very good question. One that I don't think we've spoken about at, at length much, uh, oil spills are self-reported which means that Shell, BP, and whoever, um, they inform the government and the regulators when there is, in fact, a spill. Now, you could say, well, how are you supposed to hide an oil spill? 
you know, that's, that's now, come on, you're being ridiculous, Darren. No, but the thing is they happen all the time. Uh, they happen all the time. They don't always get cleaned up right away. And sometimes you could have, you know, five or six spills on from one site. Uh, maybe the first one gets reported who knows if the next four do. And the thing is, is that the government just doesn't have the resources to provide that sort of oversight. So even right at the thing and, and imagine now, Sabina, imagine how many, uh, oil spills we've spoken about. You haven't even been on the program that long. And how many oil spills have we spoken about on this program? Uh, all of those, the ones that get media attention are the ones that we find out about all are ones that pass a, uh, a coast guard threshold. This is in the U S uh, of a hundred thousand gallons is the threshold for major spill. Um, and below that, basically they don't get reported. Sometimes they don't get reported to, um, they, they get less regulatory, uh, uh, oversight, less money for cleanup, less scientific sampling. Um, and here's the thing because it's self-reporting and there's a threshold. So we had one, uh, last month that was uh, 11,000 gallons short of that. So in the 90,000 gallon range. Um, and this is entirely self-reported and there's absolutely no way to check it. So there's a few ways that they check for oil spills. One of them is that they estimate the amount of oil by, uh, the color. So if there's a rainbow pattern on the top, they know it's a certain, uh, uh, was it micrometer something like that? Uh, and if it's a little darker Brown, then they know it's this within this range. So it's a huge guessing game. It's not like they have an, it's not like they have a valve on the pipe, which would be the way you would assume they would do it was there's the valve on the pipe. We had a certain amount of pressure lost. And so we know that this much oil escaped. No, they don't, they can't do that. That the, the thing that makes the most sense and would seem to be the most obvious way to do it apparently is either difficult or expensive. Uh, cause they don't do that. What they do is they do this weird guessing game with the color of the oil on the water. Of course, you know, forgetting the fact that weather can move this stuff away. Uh, it's all self-reported often by a single flyby by helicopter done, uh, visually. So not with some sort of fancy like laser technology. Uh, someone just kind of looks down and says, ah, oh, it looks this color. It's covering about a, you know, hectare on the surface. So we're going to, you know, pocket math, carry the one. And we got about this many gallons. Um, so this doesn't account for, um, uh, uh, dispersal. This doesn't account for the amount that doesn't get to the water. This doesn't account for the fact that it's an incredibly imprecise guessing game. Uh, and this doesn't account for the fact that, you know, uh, and the, as the article here points out, it's not, you know, we can't say that there's ever been any um, fraud here. Uh, we can't say with any certainty that there has been. We can't say that with any certainty there's ever been a single case of fraud. However, it would be pretty easy and they do have a giant incentive to, you know, self-report just under that limit because then nobody finds out about it, never makes it to the newspaper. Sure, maybe they have to pay a tiny bit more of the cleanup costs, but because nobody knows what the actual spill is, they can just, you know, not actually clean it up. They can just spend the amount of money for the size of the spill they had to, uh, or they said they had rather than the one they actually had, and then just walk away as the rest sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and the very last thing on this before we move on, uh, is that, uh, uh um, uh, a lot of the time the, um, Sorry, where was I? The, there's, a, there's an appearance code talking about that. Sorry, there was one more thing. I lost my train of thought here. Uh, oh, so uh, here was the thing. So here is a, is a good example to wrap this up. So um, during the Deepwater Horizon scale, I'm now quoting from the end of the article. Even during the Deepwater Horizon disaster, BP was forced to quintuple its estimate of wellhead's daily flow rate from 1,000 barrels a day to 5,000. Not because of a government investigation or reassessment, not because of internal corrections or a change in flow, but because of satellite and radar data collected by a tiny independent nonprofit called SkyTruth. So if we even take that as an average, let's say that's average, 
Uh, that means that there are frequently spills that never get reported because they're under 100,000 or they get reported and nobody notices because they're under 100,000. That could very well, we could very well multiply every reported spill ever by five. And that could be an average for all we know. Uh, now, who's to say this is all guessing game? But the point is, guaranteed, guaranteed, an absolute green majority guarantee. You've never heard about the vast majority of oil spills. Guaranteed. Don't care how plugged in you are. You've never heard of the vast majority of the oil spills. Number two, another green majority guarantee. Uh, there's zero chance that the reporting on many of these, if not all of these spills, have uh, had accurate amounts. So when we're talking about all these other things, and we're going to talk about some good news with qualifiers a little bit later when Alex jumps in with us here. And, uh, um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig a bit more in, uh, but just that like <laughs> that every time we have these conversations about, well, they're going to do this stuff and we'll talk about some good news later and, and whatever. It's like the, the amount of bad this causes on a regular basis um, is, is here's the thing. It's not factored in. <laughs> it's not factored in when people are talking about the value of solar panels. It's not factored in when we're talking about the environmental impacts. They're barely, they barely end to a, a pathetic degree, even talking, uh, factoring in climate change. But even without climate change, there are disastrous regular problems to health, wealth, and happiness caused by oil that you've never heard of. And it's almost certainly worse, even if you did hear about it, than what you were told. Uh, and I'm going to trail off there, Sabina. Um, yeah, I think I think this topic is extremely interesting, not only because of what an oil spill does to the ecological impact of the environment, also the, the health and mental impact of the people living around there. But what's really interesting is that during the BP oil spill, when they were recovering, like when they were trying to mitigate the efforts and try to recover and clean up the, the spill, more carbon dioxide was released into the atmosphere through the recovery or through the remediation of the oil spill. Because one of the ways that they were doing this was just literally burning the, the the Gulf of Mexico. They they were just burning it off so that so that the oil would be removed. And that there was and and what's really interesting as well is that a lot of a lot of companies jumped on this bang bandwagon, and uh, you've seen some some commercials where they take the the duck or whatever, and it's completely drowned in oil, and they they put this chemical chemical on it, and they say, "Oh, we're cleaning." It's like it's if it's safe for this, it's safe for anything, and that chemical actually ended up being ten times worse than. Of course, uh, the duck is dead. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, these these oil spills. Not only do we not hear about them, but even though they're ecologically uh, really, really harmful, not a lot of pe people hear about them, but just also the remediation efforts and the cleanup efforts are just as bad for the environment as the spill. So it's kind of like a double uh, double whammy. Double whammy, yeah. <laughs> well, and here's the other thing, and we're going to get into it. You know, I have two more here. We may, get, we may or may not get to both before the break, but... Um, in the next one here, another one here in, uh, this is from Vancouver Observer, or National Observer, rather. Uh, Canadian oilists fear running a lemonade stand with only one customer. And this is talking about um, the CAPP, Canadian Association for Petroleum Producers, uh, lobbyist uh, lead uh, vice president of communications, aka head lobbyist uh, Jeff Gowlin uh, from CAP. Uh, talking to a trade meeting and, you know, laying out the case for, yes, 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 we take uh, climate change very seriously, but, you know, we have no choice but to build at least one pipeline, which is interesting. I want to pause there for a minute before we go on and maybe get you guys to jump in. So um, 
well, and we'll go to Alex for this first because you're the the, the newbiest one on the long term of this. So, to you, d- like my feeling here and my initial uh, my initial thing here because they're, they're literally saying that like they he he says a few times in this article we're gonna have you know we'd like it we should build many but we're gonna have to build one. And it was very cautiously phrased that way. And what I took away, and I want to know if I'm reading too much into this in your opinion, was that there seems to be an admission, okay, fine, you got us. We'll probably only get one. And they're saying, like, we don't want to say we'll only take one because if we can get more, for instance, if we get the liberals out in the next election, we get some conservatives back in who want to build even more than Justin Trudeau does, maybe we'll get more. So we don't want to preemptively say we'll, we only need one. But it seems to it, – it sounds like a concession to me. What do you think, Alex? We'll go to Spina after. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read the article. What do they What do they mean exactly by the lemonade stand with only one? Oh, so I'll, I'll get to that. So for, forget about the lemonade stand thing for a second. But just the, just the idea that you know there's several pipelines on the table, and he's saying you know well we have to have one. Am I reading too much into it that uh, that that sounds like they're conceding that the environmentalists won a little bit and may have gotten them to uh, sort of preemptively accept a single one? They don't want to admit it because they don't want to take away the chance that they might get more than one. But they seem to be saying, fine, okay, we'll call a truce, give us one pipeline and and we'll work with you. Yeah. Am I, mean, I wrong? It sounds like a classic bartering situation. And, a little bit. And they're, uh, they're realizing that they're not going to get the, uh, the deal that they're looking for in the market. So they're, they're trying to at least sneak their, their one pipeline through. Um, I, I don't know whether you're reading too much into it or not. But it, it does sound a little bit like a concession. Yeah, especially yeah. if we know we're we're hearing from a lobbyist who's the uh, vice president of communications. That sounds like a vice president of communications version of a of a slight concession. Right, and uh, now would be the chance for environmentalists to say no, no pipelines <laughs> this time. We're going to win this one. Yeah, uh, well, and that's frequently what happens. As soon as you start uh, winning a fight that nobody thought you'd win, everybody rushes to your side. Right, it's like in the schoolyard if the tiny kid you know bump, bops the bully in the nose and makes his nose bleed, all of a sudden everybody's on the little kid's side. <laughs> right, and I, so I think it's that and yeah and now they're like oh we can be best friends now they're like no i'm gonna hit you again actually um sabina what do you think no i come i completely agree and i think i mean when it comes to you just said it's vp of communications he's very well trained like (laughs) i can tell you i'm sure he's done a lot of school in which he can make his words sound very very convincing to people and um coming coming from you know a business background they really teach you exactly how to say the words that you need to say in order to kind of please everyone in the room and i think they're doing exactly that he's saying okay well you know what we'll just do one pipeline to please the environmentalists and also to please whatever they're sharing holders they're kind of just trying to have it all and like you said if they can get more then they will get more and they're going to spin the conversation that way we don't want to say we're okay with only one exactly it's just really he's really good at his job (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like what you're saying is the business school you seem to be implying here sabine i don't want to put you on the spot Uh, but it's it seems like you're implying that business school is sociopath training Oh, it's a hundred percent. There that. you go. Okay, it's I didn't want to. I didn't want to take you out of context there. No, no, no. It, <laughs> it is that, and I'm in it. So I don't know how much of a sociopath I'll be by the end of this, but Mm-mm. it's it really, really teaches you, and especially when you go and you listen to um, a corporate company talk about their, let's say, sustainability plans. Somehow they make you believe that they're really amazing when you've read everything that they're so terrible at. For example, I think it was Stefan that that went to the they went to he went to Globe and uh, he said 
the CEO of Nestle was talking about sustainability when pretty much every single environmentalist hates the company. Oh yeah, he's on my list for he's in the top three of worst people on earth. Yeah. And yeah, and but however, <laughs> on paper or what it would seem from a communications point of view, Nestle is really, really sustainable as a company. Yeah. And that's the difference between actually trying to make a difference and a business's point of view as to what sustainability means. Yeah. So let's let's come back though. I'm going to come back to the the, the lemonade stand thing. So the other thing that it, the, there's two other things I want to cover quickly in this and then we'll maybe we'll go to a music break is uh so one of them was that he's talking about um so they're really trying hard to brand the uh, Canada could be the world's clean energy supplier. <laughs> uh and it and you know, and so what he's talking about was, uh, you know, there's been some, there has been some development. I mean, the, the oil sands and the, with the help of the Alberta government has been pumping billions of dollars into uh, carbon, you know, carbon alleviation type technologies at various things. Some of them involve getting more energy, like using waste energy to put back into, to alleviate the power requirements of running the tar sands themselves. Some of them have had to do with making the fuel generated a little bit less carbon intensive. Some of them have uh, involved carbon capture and storage um, which is a highly questionable technology, which we'll get back to later. Um, and, and the idea that, uh, come on, basically seems to be his argument, but there's two, there's two things here. Uh, I, so we'll deal with the lemonade stand one. So the reason he's saying Canada oil lobbyists feel running a lemonade stand with one customer that the reason that's the title of the, the article is what he's saying is that essentially the Canadian oil market largely like it's a global market, but basically our largest customer is the U S and so what they're doing, you know, if, because if there's cheap oil, especially with the embargo being lifted uh, over uh, Iran, there's a lot of other cheap oil being pumped into the market right now. And uh, combining that, so that's driving down the price of oil combined with a, you know, until somebody does something about it, resurgence in uh, shale and a whole bunch of advances in, in uh, hydraulic fracturing or, or fracking uh, technology. Um, that they're basically running out of places to sell their expensive oil. And the only way to bring it to a thing where it's still profitable for them is if they do their own processing, which requires uh, either, well, either doing some of their own proce processing or getting it to uh, international markets. So they basically, they need the pipelines to get it to a customer other than the Americans. And the Americans are quickly not needing the product as much and prices being driven down. So what they're saying is if we don't get the pipelines to be able to cheaply and cost-effectively get it to ocean, so that we can ship it by uh, by sea to other customers, we're gonna we're essentially gonna run out of customers. Um, and I say good, um, but I was like, that's the exact point of what we've been trying to do is strand oil. And then of course he's saying, you know, well, and, and it almost seems like a threat. And he's like, well, if we don't get these pipelines, we're just gonna have to do it by rail. It's the the which one of course is. You know, it's a weird threat because we just talked about how often the pipelines leak. So, yeah, it probably is worse. Um, but it's like kind of like saying that like swallowing broken glasses is, is as, not quite as bad or worse than swallowing razor blades. I mean, either one is terrible. Um, so not Great really imagery. buying it. But there, thank you. Yes, I've been in a bit of a mood. Uh, so last thing, and we'll go to break. I'll save the, I'll save the other thing for later. Uh, was that it was a quote here. <clears throat> I'm going to see. I just got to skim quickly here to find it. It was right at the end. Uh, da, 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 where do you put it? Um, okay. So when you look at greenhouse gas, this is a quote now from, uh, from the, uh, CAPP, um, 
uh, Vice President of Communications, Jeff. Uh, when, you look communi- uh, when you look greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, the oil sands only represent 8.5%. He explained the other sectors that need to pull up their socks, uh, the other sectors as need to pull up their socks as well. Buildings are responsible for 12.5%, but you don't see a war on buildings, do you, Alex? Where's the war on buildings? Well, guess what? We don't have an alternative to buildings. We do have an alternative to oil. Fail. <laughs> you get an F for that argument. <laughs> well, and and you can reduce that 12% down to 8%, down to 6% by uh, keeping on uh, innovation like in building. And that's sort of the path that we're, we're going on, especially with uh, a new liberal... Uh, climate change bill mm-hmm. uh, in Ontario anyway. Uh, and that's something we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, yes, other industries need to pull up their socks, but other industries are, are better equipped to pull up their socks what, through innovation. Other industries aren't spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars fighting these changes, for starters. Second of all, yes, we are doing that. There is, in fact, a war on buildings. But here's the thing. It's not being as publicly fought because they're not resisting. I mean, there is some resistance, of course, and asking any industry to, ch- to change involuntarily for reasons that don't have anything to do with making them more money is always going to be is always going to be pushback on that. Um, but we're seeing rapid progress. There is no alternative to buildings. And yes, actually, there is a war on buildings. It's just going more silently because they're not kicking and screaming and they're not the, you know, there's no giant building manufacturing company that owns, you know, most of the wealth on the planet and is spending, you know, uh, the, the uh, GDP of a small island nation a year to fight regulations against it. So, um you know, this guy sounds very uh, pleasant, as you would if your job was to be a, a VP of talking. Uh, facts don't hold up, bad arguments. And if this is the best they've got, and I think it is because this guy's job is to advertise for Cap. And it sounds like this is the best he's got. Um, and he's got nothing. So, Sabina, did you have something? Yeah. Uh, w- w- another thing that I wanted to mention is that when you're talking about other industries that are unsustainable, for example, buildings or transportation and things like this, the reason why the oil and gas industry is so unsustainable is because at its 100% at its core, its business model is based on extracting finite resources, whereas other industries don't have that problem. But when you go into mining and uh, coal and as well as, for example, oil and gas, those are 100% extracting of resources that are finite. When you can you can definitely reuse materials for a building. You can recycle and you can use most of that in order to to create new buildings or make new materials. However, you can't recreate like an oil well. It's just not possible. So when when at the base of your of your business is extracting and completely removing finite resources from the earth that is the definition of unsustainable so there's really not much you can say to that yeah and so let's look at those numbers again and then we'll go to a music break so he says 8.5 percent is on the oil sands first of all these numbers are very fuzzy and like 8.5 percent is is only accurate in the extremely specific context that he's talking about and this is just anyway it's it's fun with math it's creative use of numbers so the number itself is questionable but let's let's take it at face value fine oil sands represents 8.5 is that all oil use in canada no is that all oil infrastructure in canada no so it's already above 8.5 but let's let's fine let's take them at as 8.5 if uh efficiency upgrades on average usually see about a 50 percent reduction so 12.5 we're now at 6.25 
Uh, now, so we, if we implemented every possible upgrade to buildings, we're looking at about 50% power increase and more with more expected deliberately over time with, I forget the name of that rule, but the rule uh, that talks about uh, computer processor speed doubling at certain rate. Yes, it is Moore's law. I didn't hear you on the mic, but it was Moore's law. Um, so let's say that. So that's so there's a huge window of improvement there. Yes, these are changes we can do now. We have the technology now, and there's just a matter of putting them into practice. Uh, the entire 8.5% can be removed. Sorry, that's better. <laughs> 8.5 is a bigger number than 6.25. And we can still do the other number too at the same time by switching to renewable energy immediately and as strongly as possible. And before you say anything about jobs, guess what makes a lot of jobs building a renewable energy future? All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT <clears throat> 89.5 FM. CIUT, that is, 89.5 FM. Also, I'm getting back used to uh, being back in this chair, and I did neglect one of my duties. One of my duties is, in fact, to thank very much our radio syndicate partners all the way across the country, all the radio stations uh, that syndicate our program, and all the other agencies that also uh, put out our content as well, uh, including our partners over at rabble.ca. Very appreciated. Uh, as well as uh, all the radio stations and all the volunteers and all of you, the listeners. We love you. Thank you for listening. Uh, as well, uh, we're going to uh, have a bonus show after the program a little bit today. I haven't decided what we're going to talk about uh, yet largely, although I am going to make a quick note about my uh, my absence and return of my health for those who are interested. Generally, it's only the really hardcore, super cool people who listen to the bonus show, so that will be just for you. I'm not going to talk about that on air. That's not related to the show, but if you're interested, uh, I'm going to do a kind of like final actual announcement about what's going on with me. So if you've been interested why I've been away and I may potentially be away in the future, uh, hopefully not. Uh, you can listen to the bonus show and then, I don't know, we'll talk about something fun in addition to that. Uh, so without further ado, however, we're going to talk now about makeup. Sabina's going to help me a little bit with this one, but uh, there was a report uh, being done and it was um, uh, done by the Environment Commission uh, or re uh, the report is sort of uh, uh, centered around, the, the press release was centered around the Environment Commissioner, Julie uh, Gelfand. Uh, and it was uh, drawing attention to potentially hazardous uh, chemicals in everyday uh, co uh, consumer items. So this is not necessarily specific to cosmetics, although cosmetics is a huge issue in here. It does also include general body care products. So when a lot of the time, uh, I know Sabina, if I say the word cosmetics, uh, you know, 50% of our listeners, aka the men, just sort of tune their ears out because they think, well, I don't wear, you know, lipstick, so this doesn't apply to me. It does. It's pretty much all body care options, uh, everything from toothpaste to um, you know, your Axe body spray, you terrible human being who wears Axe body spray. Um, any of those other things, anything you put on um, from a cosmetic point of view, whether or not you consider it makeup uh, counts, including household, uh, and, and in addition to that, uh, as well, household cleaners and all sorts of other household products. So um, there's a few major issues here. I'm going to outline a couple of them, and then I'm going to go to Sabina for, uh, for comment. Uh, but the major one here essentially was that uh, the, the, the biggest part of it is the proprietary ingredients lists, essentially. So, um, it makes sense from a business point of view, um, because of the competition in the marketplace. So specifically things with fragrances, fragrances have largely been held as trade secrets. So if you go and get your favorite perfume, there's, uh, you know, anywhere between a few and dozens of ingredients which are not listed. And this is done for legal reasons that uh, exempts these companies from disclosure laws because of the highly competitive nature of the fragrance industry. Uh, they got a bunch of laws passed where they do not have to disclose their ingredients lists lest 
they give away. Well, I'd say a less they give away their trade secrets and B probably because a lot of people would be grossed out if they knew it was actually in their makeup. Cause there's probably like dolphin urine or something like that. Uh, almost certainly there is dolphin urine. Um, but this is something that has a uh, range of problems because there's a number of these things. And the, the, the issue here is that, and currently, and this is the thing that like I knew it, but I sort of, when I reread it, Sabina sort of surprised me again, which was, it isn't just consumers, which have this information hidden from them. It's also environment Canada. So they literally just by saying they can put aroma on a bottle and environment Canada goes, Oh, well that falls under the discretionary uh, part of the law. We can't ask what's in it. And it turns out, uh, that a lot of this stuff has harmful uh, stuff, including many carcinogens, many cancer-causing agents. Um, they're saying many of these are not safe, including ones that say fragrance-free that may in fact just have a fragrance and then has an additional chemical added to mask the fragrance. Also listed on the things of the do not assume these are safe rule are things listed as hypoallergenic and unscented. Uh, for initial comments, Sabina. Uh, yeah, I mean, this this conversation is really, really widely spoken about um, in the chemical communities, mainly because these are products that we use every single day, but people don't have the toxicological information like based on those products. So uh, Environment Canada may know that this is an issue, but they don't have every all of the data in which they can issue, okay, now we're going to ban this product. For example, what comes to mind is the banning of microbeads mm -hmm. that was in every single one of um, scrubbers and face washes. And it had nothing to do with making your face cleaner. It was just kind of like a it, it was mainly for its physical um, it's impact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it's it's shown that microbeads because it because of their polymer base, like they're plastic. So they are pretty much accumulating on all of our on all of our lakes and uh, Canada and the US have now uh, committed to ban them completely. And this also reminds me of a, uh, a topic that I've extensively researched is nanoparticles and nanomaterials in our everyday environment. And this is probably around 10 years or 15 years away from being banned. So we're going to see a lot more of nanoparticles in our everyday in our, in our everyday materials. And one of the main ones that you were talking about, guys think that they're not really exposed to this because they don't wear makeup. It's in sunscreen. So if you ever wear sunscreen or if you ever think that, oh, I'm trying to protect myself from the sun so that I don't, you know, get cancer. Well, there's definitely zinc oxide in your sunscreen in which it can definitely lead to very bad effects on your body. Mm. And, and the main thing is that nanomaterials and nanotechnology is so new. Uh, depending on what you think of as new, it's around relatively 10 to 20 years old. So not a lot of data is on, on its imp impacts on a large scale. They can only test the data or what's going to happen in the lab. If it's tested safe in the lab, it seems like it's safe, but it's not necessarily environmental effects. And that's really the main issue ab about nanomaterials because now they've seen that because they're so small, they go into the DNA of plants when they're released into the environment and completely change the structure of plants. And they also go into the DNA of humans and there's even been some deaths. But this is when people are highly exposed to this, but yeah. it will we will continue to be exposed to nanomaterials and all other types of carcinogens and chemicals in our cosmetics and household products. And 
it has to change, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And maybe that's before we go through it, Alex here, maybe that's the, what we can talk about in the, in the after show a little bit was the, the thing you said there about the, you know, it caused a few deaths and it's like the thing, maybe we can talk about later. We can change our minds if we want, but was just the idea of that. Like, you know, people seem to only pay attention when it causes a death, but like, you know, increasing cancer rates by like 90%. So like, you know, 70 people get out of a thousand get cancer instead of two, um, sort of that, that, that doesn't seem real, I guess. And so people don't respond to it. So if something is like highly toxic, but just ruins your life and makes you die slowly and painfully, eventually doesn't, you know, nobody notices that. But if one, you know, baby, you know, fall, you know, gets very, you know, makes a good photo because blood's coming out of their nose or something and dies, then it's all over the headlines. And it, and it really distorts our ability to actually assess risk. Uh, in our day-to-day life. Um, so maybe we can come back to that. But let's go to Alex, who it is, hand up. Well, I was just going to say plastic uh, microbeads and plastic nano uh, <laughs> particles terrify me. I, I feel like even if we figure out the whole uh, fossil fuel, um, like if we, if we pare back our fossil fuel consumption, we're still at risk of destroying the planet just from these, these little pieces of plastic. These are like through bioaccumulation, through like, covering the top of the ocean uh like plastic we all we all already know that plastic is is uh contributing to destroying the oceans but these are things we can't even see Mm. and um i'm yeah i'm just worried that uh since these are particles that'll be around for 50 years maybe a thousand years we don't really know uh it's it's going to be something that we don't realize until it's too late uh, that the uh, the kind of destruction that it's causing. So, I mean, I personally, the first time I heard about how uh, how potentially harmful microbeads are, I, t- I made sure to remove them from my home and not mm. ever buy them again. And I hope that all of our listeners will take a look around for microbead containing products and, and do the same thing. Yeah, very, very easy to do. There's there, the identical product, you know, with a, with a minimum ask to lifestyle change, you know, we're not asking to become vegans or anything here, uh, is go and find the exact same product, but without microbeads. Very simple. And uh, it's, you're not going to save the planet, but it's the easiest thing you can do to make a difference today is to never buy microbeaded products again. Sabina. I think I think the microbeads aren't really going to be necessarily a huge problem from here on out because they are banning them. And a lot of you know, stores and and companies are are going towards banning them. My number one issue is that we have, like, for example, there was some recent articles um, online saying that a lot of the water that we drink has antibiotics and antidepressants uh, in it that uh, chemical waste treatment plants and water treatment plants cannot process because it's way too small. And not only is that the same with uh, all of the medical waste that's that's in our drinking water but it's the same with nanoparticles and nanotechnology and we're constantly consuming this and it's really really hard to move away from this topic because it is all around us because of the way that we have moved ourselves to so even though we think that technology is the answer and innovation is the answer we really the people that are creating these new innovations really have to look really well at the data of what's happening after this is released into the environment or into the atmosphere. Because if you don't do that full circle check, especially when it comes to chemicals, then it can really harm more than do good. Yeah. So we're, uh, I want to keep, uh, get back on track. We went the first a little long in the first section. So we'll cut this uh, section a little short so we get back on the timing track. So the, the very last thing about that, first of all, I want to make a note for anyone who thought that, uh, oh, look, Darren threw to Sabina because it's about cosmetics. So the girl's going to know more about that. No, it's because she knows more about science than I do. 
Notice that? <laughs> Notice that? Uh, thank you, Sabina, for providing information which I do not have off the top of my head, which you totally did because I didn't warn you about that until 10 seconds before. So you should be impressed. That was pretty good. Uh, so let's move on. So there was more about that. We were also talking about the, later in that article. Again, this will be all be posted on the website as well. Um, there was a uh, further part of uh, the report, which also goes on and talk about uh, the resilience of infrastructure uh, in response to uh, climate change and uh, a somewhat... Uh, venom toothed, I might say a little bit, uh, pulling no punches, uh, uh, criticism about the spending on mitigation projects. So from the environment commissioner. So it's good. Uh, she's the, 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 this environment commissioner has actually, um, uh, impressed me quite a bit today. Anyway, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, another quick one, which we'll have on the website. Maybe we won't have time today. Maybe we will, but, uh, I'll just mention it now in case we don't get back to it as well was there was another article, which again, I will also post, uh, about most Canadian seafood, uh, fails harvesting sustainability tests. So again, the same thing, just a general theme here of, uh, regulation, uh, not being up to snuff. And the, the thing I get here is the idea is that, you know, you know, nag a, a, a parent nagging a child to like clean the room or something like that. It's something that's so annoying to do regulation uh, oversight. God, I mean, we have to make sure every cookie doesn't have more than four chocolate chips in it. But look, this is really important. And we have to be adults. And that means we have to do this stuff. And that means we have to pay for it. Uh, because the impact of not paying for it means you get sick. Uh, or, you know, heaven forbid you, uh, you know, pass away because somebody else, you know, thought it was going to do, you know, it was too much to spend an extra, you know, 2% of their product cost to make sure it wasn't giving everybody cancer. So we have to be adults about this. Um, regulation and oversight matters. Companies obviously won't do it themselves. Uh, anyone who thinks they will is a fool. I'm sorry, because you've never st read a newspaper in your life. Um, so we need to make sure that we're regulating and controlling these companies properly, whether they be fish companies, oil companies, or, you know, environmental branding, uh, you know, green seal of approval companies, uh, all of these things need oversight and, uh, we have to be responsible about it. So let's take a, uh, let's take our second break right there. We'll come back with a couple of pieces of sort of good news. All right, we're right back. You're listening to The Green Majority here in the final section on CIUT 89.5 FM. All of our wonderful radio and community partners all the way across the country now into the United States, as well our wonderful partners over at rabble.ca who have been uh, helping to promote our content and our uh, podcast uh, for quite some time now. Thank you very much to them as well. And uh, also uh, just a continuous, basically, shout out to the National Observer for doing uh, mm -hmm. great uh, work as well. Always uh, a lot of content available to be found there. If you don't feel like listening to the show, you can basically go read one of those sources, either Rabble or National Observer, and you'll find about a third of our news articles we source. Probably about a third. A lot of the rest of them come from uh, the Guardian or International sources or, or mainstream media sources that we then just have to reinsert um, some commentary into because they leave out the juicier parts, but there you go. Uh, so we're going to go now to our sort of uh, good news with an asterisk uh, portion of the program today. Uh, I will be providing the asterisk. So for the good news portion, uh, Sabina Hassani. Yeah, so th again, this is an article. Uh, so the National Observer recently posted an article on one of the largest oil companies in the world, which is Shell Canada, uh, walking away from a large part of their oil and gas reserves in the Canadian Arctic. And this announcement was made at the Ocean Summit, uh, for Oceans Week last week, hosted in Ottawa by WWF Canada in order to allow the government to protect the region and the local communities and the species nearby in those areas where Shell had the licenses to, to drill. So another, so what's really interesting is that Shell Canada is also facing legal challenges by WWF beforehand to cancel these leases. 
And uh, they say that they received no comp compensation or tax receipts for what they did. And Michael Crothers is the president of Shell Canada. He dismissed any questions, of course, when asked about the transfer of the leases, uh, if it was due to the lawsuit or not. And he responded that they had already been uh, negotiating with the government of Canada to give to give away these leases beforehand. And the negotiations were motivated mainly by an announcement in December where the li Liberal government promised to protect 10% of the country's marine areas. I personally think 10% is what 10%? I mean, we live in a country that is so amazing and is so amazing in its environmental abundancy. How are you going to only promise to protect 10%? But that's another story. So um, in the meantime... Uh, people are really, really happy with this decision. However, Crothers and Shell Canada say that they're not completely giving up Arctic, uh, giving up drilling in the Arctic, and they're looking at the North on a case-by-case -case basis, which is... Uh, so it says we have his his specific comment says we have to look at our opportunities in the north on a case by case basis and um, and we still have that in our portfolio. In fact, there's a natural seepage of oil and gas in the Baffin Bay area, and so on and so forth. And they're just pretty much saying here you can have this little bit and uh, we're going to make you happy, but wherever we see that there's a large reserves of oil, we still want to go there, and we're not completely giving up. Arctic drilling rights. Yeah. So the 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 sarcastic, um, cynical view of this says, well, they didn't really want it anyway, um, and they're not saying anything about other projects. So you know they're framing this not as a activism win, and and I'm and I question that it really was. Uh, I think this probably was something they didn't want. However, I'm going to asterisk my own asterisk and say that that being said, the traditional uh, way of operation for these companies is the, you know, get away peasant sort of response and they just sort of don't do anything. Now, I think the positive, so the positive news here, I don't think is the news. Um, I think the positive news here is, is an indication of a lot of the larger story that's going on. And the indication of the larger story here is going on to me is that this says that even the biggest companies now are choosing their fights. They're picking which things they want to fight on and which ones they don't. And that's a concession that these fights are effective and it's a concession that they have that their resources are being strained. So from two things. One, the political will to oppose them is not only there, but is there in a way that they know it's there. And so they're not gonna they're they're in a position now where they have to pick their fights. And the other thing as well is that simply the cost of fighting it is costing them enough money. So it's, it isn't really just about the PR at this point. I think they've accepted that there's a certain portion of the public who's just going to think they're Satan no matter what they do. And I think that's their attitude and I'm not even sure that's wrong. Um, but regardless of that, um, that, you know, any fights that there's a chance they could lose. And because there's a chance they could lose any specific fight, they now have to consider the cost of those fights, uh, which means that they're going to preemptively pick some of their fights. So is the, uh, abdication of these rights, uh, you know, a victory, uh, okay, technically, um, but I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to go buy a celebratory ice cream cake tonight or anything. Um, however, I think as part of an ongoing, uh, battle. This is more indication that the we're winning. And so I think what that means is redouble your efforts, right? Um, and uh, keep at it because this pressure is, is working. It's continuing to work. And whether it be because you've uh, upset the local community enough that there's enough local resistance to these projects uh, or just enough general public 
awareness of the fact that there are alternatives to these projects, um, this is going to continue to push them in the right direction. And again, I will say again, just because it's been a, a theme, and especially I don't want to be a bad uh, sort of winner here and go, ha ha, screw you, oil people and all the people who work there. No, we're all Canadians and we all deserve to have a good job. I would just prefer that the people who work in the oil sands were given the resources, training and job job retraining and resources to be able to uh, transition into clean energy jobs. Um, I want all of those people to be employed and have their families and have their little, you know, two-year-olds bubble bath or whatever in the backyard. Um, I just don't want them to earn their money from doing that by something that's going to hurt all of us, including their own kids later in the future. So uh, I will leave it there. We're going to go now to Alex, uh, who wants to tell me a little bit about some other good news I should be happy about theoretically. Let's see if I remain happy. Yeah, well, uh, there we go. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about an article uh, about a, a really cool experiment that was happening in Iceland where they were working on turning uh, CO2 gas uh, from um, uh, from uh, electrical emissions uh, back into stone, uh, solidifying it. So what, what the process was, was uh, they pumped CO2 gas mixed with water into volcanic rock, um, basalt specifically. Uh, the basalt contains minerals that react to the carbon dioxide to form carbonate, which is a mineral that makes up limestone. And uh, the researchers, this was sort of a trial thing. The researchers were predicting that it would take over 100,000 years for the gas to turn into stone. And they were shocked when in this particular trial, it only took two years. Uh, so all of a sudden, everybody was excited, like, hey, maybe we've solved climate change. We can just turn all of this gas back into stone. Uh, so this is uh, one of many uh, carbon capture and storage techniques, uh, or CCS for short. Um, traditionally in CCS, uh, they're, they're pumping gas into empty oil reservoirs. Uh, but the worry with this has always been, uh, is the gas going to leak out someday, um, and just cause carbon emissions at some point in the future? Um, so this Iceland project, uh, now that it's been successful, they're scaling up to 10,000 tons, uh, of carbon, uh, dioxide per year, which is great. Uh, to like put that in context, there's like hundreds of millions of tons emitted every year. So it's a small, it's a s very small portion, but, uh, but they're saying that they could, uh, they could transfer this technique to anywhere, uh, on the globe where there's, uh, this basalt rock and volcanic activity. Um, some notable examples being the West coast of the United States and India, which has, a huge basalt deposit and also a ton of coal power plants. Um, another problem with this, uh, with this um, technique, is that it uses water, approximately 25 tons per uh, per ton of CO2 that's buried. Um, but the caveat is, uh, they think that they can use seawater uh, effectively to uh, instead of fresh water. So. There's mm -hmm. lots, of, lots of seawater to be used. There, there was also a comment there that, that the, the next largest, you know, uh, non-volcanic specific uh, deposits of basalt are also on the ocean floor. So if you can right. use seawater, you know, potentially this opens up the ocean floor, which <laughs> I'll hold off my asterisk comments <laughs> for a minute. But on the, before we get to that section that, you know, the potentially there's a large opportunity there, you know, asterisks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Implied. Well. Yeah, what, what I want to say is I thought that this was really exciting and really cool. I love when there's uh, technological innovations that can help shift uh, 
like immediately shift to um, to reducing carbon emissions. Uh, but I mean, this is sort of like taking the uh, solution, the solution that technology is going to save us versus let's shift our mindset to not emit uh, so much carbon in the first place that we have to come up with these things to, to save us from uh, from immediate or from future peril due to global warming. Mm -hmm. So I know I know what Darren's going to say uh, as the main problem with this, but I'm going to let him say it. Okay. Well, there's there's a couple. I warned you as to one of them. Uh, there's a couple things. So we're, we just have a minute left here, so I'll do it kind of quickly. The, so the first one is I want to point out is the distinction between what they're talking about here and what's been going on in Alberta. Um, the difference being is that when they're storing, and, I, and I'm not an expert here, so I'm doing kind of the Coles Notes version, um, is that essentially in traditional carbon capture and storage, uh, the carbon is trapped within the porous uh, rock at a at a near chemical level. I understand, so it's not it's still gas. But it's not just like a balloon full of gas. It's actually so if you popped the balloon, it all runs away immediately. Um, it's it's more almost chemically bonded with the rock at the gas level. So um, I've I've had someone explain this to me you know, quite frustratedly when I brushed off them aside that this you know the, okay this is not quite you know your understanding on how this works isn't quite accurate and fair enough. Um, and this seems like an even better one because, you know, my thing was, well, you can tell me it's chemi chemically bonded all day long, but a gas in a solid uh, structure, that still doesn't feel right to me. I'm not a chemical engineer, but it still doesn't feel right to me as something that's like long-term safe. Um, especially when they get it to bond through a chemical reaction that for all we know, there could be a natural chemical reaction that could go the other way. So it, it could, in effect, despite their assurances, be exactly the same situation. The situation they assured me it wasn't, which was a balloon full of gas that could get popped at any time. So there's, there is that concern, but this is different for that reason and that at least it's solid. Uh, I don't know that it being solid alleviates my initial concern, but that's an, I don't know. So that's not a fair criticism. My real point here is the one about, um, you know, so, you know, I'm going to, I found, I was trying to think desperately of a non video game analogy. Cause I know I use that a lot, so I did, but it's not as good as my video game analogy, but I'll, I'll spare you the video game analogy for, for this time. So, um, say that you need to buy a new computer and there's updates for all the, the operating software and you've already spent quite a bit of money. Say you're a big company. So you didn't download a pirated copy. Uh, you, you know, you went out and you bought all the gizmos for the last generation of, of operating systems. So let's say, let's pick on Microsoft, let's say windows seven and you bought all these expansions. You got all these like custom upgrades for the thing. And you invested a lot of money in this operating system. And then a new operating system comes out that promises to completely revolutionize computing, but it's, you know, exceedingly expensive. The cost will come down over time. Um, but it's the, the infrastructure for the old system is going to be phased out very quickly. Anyway, you see where I'm going with the analogy. The point is here is the fact that you could continue to get usefulness out of the old operating system by buying upgrades and things that, you know, do some of the stuff that the new things do. And maybe even those upgrades are, you know, even combined are cheaper than buying the new operating system. But the sooner you get the new operating system, all of the upgrades are built in. All of the things are scale. It only gets cheaper over time as opposed to more expensive. And it's a very simple case of accounting that the sooner you buy into the thing that's going to be the next thing, it's going to be a larger upfront cost, but long-term your costs are going to be lower. And that's something that we're just really bad as people. We're bad at math. Hashtag math is hard. And they're playing on that fear. But it is not 
it is not cheaper long-term to do this. And I think the sooner that we buy into the technology that's going to make all this stuff moot, um, we could have $10 billion worth of these solar plants running by the time they even build it. Show's over. Afraid that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for listening to The Green Majority. Stay tuned for the bonus show if you want to hear us talk a little bit more uh, and for me to get a little personal for a minute. Other than that, have a good green week, folks. You can check it all out at greenmajority.ca. Take care. So thank you for listening to the regular program. We're now into the bonus part of the show where we have a, a completely unplanned discussion, which uh, started with uh, humans' abilities to deal with long-term problems and, and uh, got into economics <laughs> slightly quickly. Um, just sort of some some really light stuff. Uh, but I do have an update about uh, why I've been away a little bit at the end. So if you've been interested in that at all as well, I do have sort of a little sort of here's what's going on. Um, and uh, other than that, before we get to the bonus show, just a reminder as well, please, if you can consider uh, becoming a Green Majority member, you can do that for as little as a dollar. The recommended is about $5, um, but everything goes to help us produce the show, which is done entirely out of pocket and currently at a loss. So we would uh, really appreciate your support. You can do that at patreon.com slash green majority p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash green majority enjoy the bonus show Okay, so we're into the uh, the bonus show again uh, with our two uh, hosts, uh, Spina uh, and Alex, uh, who are uh, joining us for this as well. Uh, I'm going to do a quick run through of sort of what's been going on with me at the end, because we'll do something else now. That's more of just, a, a, just an update for interesting, and it's not really relevant to the show unless you're just super interested about where I've been. So we'll leave that for a minute. But first, what did we say we were going to do? We were going to do the idea of uh, sort of long-term threats, uh, people not taking long-term threats. Uh, seriously, and it has kind of the, um, there, there's a lot of examples of this. I mean, climate change being an obvious one, but it's, it, it's, it's sort of a constant problem. I, I would almost say that even in a way, this is like the issue, uh, because people, when they're actually presented with danger, uh, deal with that danger. The problem is not, the problem is taking it seriously because it's not immediate. It doesn't seem real. And, uh, I don't know, maybe we can just jam on that concept before we get into maybe, you know, what could be done about it or whatever. How do you feel about it, Alex? Um, well, I feel like we're at an interesting point right now because even, even conservatives and climate change deniers are starting to be like, all right, maybe this thing is actually real, but in acknowledging it, uh, there may be like, they're like, okay, we've acknowledged it. You're right. But they're not going to do anything about it. They're just like. All right, maybe we've been wrong this whole time, but like, still gotta make money, still gotta like extract oil. So. Well, that's, that's what the oil companies say, right? They're like, now they're saying, well, climate change is real, but we still need to have that pipeline because otherwise, what are you gonna do for jobs? Yeah, so we really we run the risk as environmentalists of uh, of like accepting, like, all right, we've we've had this great victory in convincing people that climate change is real. Uh, our work must be done, or. Or like we've won the battle and now things are going to sort themselves out, uh, which I think is is a bit of a well a big time fallacy. Well, another another part of that problem that's sort of different, but it plays into it is the whole idea of, you know, if you imagine somebody trying to describe a puzzle to somebody else, um, and they're maybe just starting out and they've got a broken puzzle. Okay, so here's I got my analogy started out here. Okay, so there's two friends. One of them's got a completed puzzle in front of them, and the other one has got just bought the same puzzle and was looking for help because they they're having trouble getting started. Maybe they have like you know a dozen pieces out of a thousand piece puzzle put together, 
uh, they've got a dozen pieces. Maybe they have a little cluster, so they they think they know what the image is because they've got a little pieces of the image. Uh, but the person they're speaking to on the phone has is looking at the completed puzzle, and I feel like that sort of problem is sort of like where a lot of the conversations go between, you know, well-informed environmentalists, people like Bill McKibben, and you know other people who say they accept climate change but then don't you know do anything that actually matches up to their reactions it's because they're looking at an incomplete part of the puzzle or they don't understand why you know we'll get into this like well you know why would we do that because if you compare it on this one metric like if you if you compare it on uh total output per dollar building it for instance you can make some interesting comparisons between fossil fuels and solar and that those comparisons would look very very different between 15 years ago five years ago and today and 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 five years from now um, but that's still only a tiny part of it. And I feel like a big part of this problem, even maybe more bigger than the time scale part of the problem, is just this idea that like when you're looking at a complete thing, you can you can take shortcuts and make assumptions at much more efficiently than if you're only looking at part of a thing. And things that might seem inefficient if you're only looking at like uh, part of the puzzle. So maybe they're in the completed puzzle of the partially completed per sorry, of the partially completed puzzle has only one red thing. And you'd be like, well, I'll sell you a bunch of red pieces for a dollar. And be like, well, if you don't think you need any more red pieces, that's not a good deal. Whereas if it turns out that, you know, later down the road, you realize that half of the puzzle you couldn't see is all red pieces, uh, you know, buying them at the time may have been extremely cost effective because now they're more money. Now, now I'm stretching the analogy a little bit past its breaking point. But do you see what, like, it's just this, it's this disconnect between if you only have part of a story, sometimes you can be more than partially wrong uh, because you can lead to false conclusions. And I think those are sort of two major meta problems here is the one is the the timescale problem. And the other one is the the people you're speaking to don't get the full picture. And so they're not going to make the same conclusions about the part that you do agree on uh, as other ones. Sabina, comment? No, the, the one thing that, that I wanted to, to talk about was, can you hear me? Yeah, cool. yeah the one thing that I wanted to say was I, I really like this analogy because I think our education system is based, I think we spoke about this on last week's show or the week before, is based on having specialties. But when you get so specialized in something, it's very, very hard to see the big picture. So where, like, who can we hire? or Who is that person that's going to connect the gap from that solar energy technician just thinking, okay, solar energy is the right way to go to the VP of communications to an oil company? I mean, how do we get these two ideas to mix together in order for us to move towards like a more sustainable future and I think it's this problem that, that you're talking about is that some people just don't see the big picture because let's say they're an economist and they've just been taught that you look at what's going to bring what's going to move the economy forward and the economy is based on this society which is inherently unsustainable so trying to fix something within an unsustainable society will not make it sustainable you have to completely change the whole system but who is going to be that person that bridges the, the the knowledge gap between you know one economist and an environmentalist and a business person i think i think it all it has a lot to do with the education system and the way that we can move forward and try to see the big picture but not you know not get carried away and specialize in things so, so well, and then there's people who are actively preying on that um, to to sow confusion and doubt. Scum, people like scumbags like uh, Bjorn Lomberg, who loves to um, talk about this uh, this future discounting, which is a um, economic principle that says yeah. that you know technology will continue to be cheaper in the future. Uh, so generally speaking, you know, wait forever. This isn't how he phrases it, but it is essentially the logical conclusion of the argument, which is that if you never deal with a problem, eventually solving the problem is free. 
but that assumes that the problem never gets worse over time. So, I mean, there are certain cases where this would in fact be true, but it it doesn't it doesn't work uh, because this is something that gets exponentially more uh, you know expensive as the cost to deal with it climb uh, you know drops at a significantly shallower uh, incline. So the the relative cost actually skyrockets. But you know if you know how to play with numbers a little bit and you know just enough about uh, economics to fool other people who know just a little bit about economics, then you can make very convincing sounding arguments for we shouldn't do anything. This problem will be free to solve later if we just do nothing. What's what's really interesting to me is that even if you have a little bit of an economics background. I have like a very basic economics background and even just thinking about the externalities. I mean, who is paying for the pollution that exists because of the oil companies? It's either the government or, you know, people's favorite thing, the taxpayer. But it really is. So, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about economics and somebody says, OK, we need to continue building um, pipelines because it's going to be cheaper and easier to transport. Who is going to pay for the externalities of that? Who is going to pay for more fossil fuels being burned, uh, being burned, more carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere? What's the price of you know a small island nation that will be underwater in about five years if if this continues to happen? So I mean, if if you really are an economist, then you really have to see like what is the price of the thing that you're doing and not putting a price. Not, if you don't include the externality of the thing that you're doing, then you're not really doing the correct economics of that. You're not really doing the correct financial uh, situation there, I think. Assessment. Yeah. Assessment. Thank you. That's the word. To, to me, uh, traditional economics should be relegated to history class because the, the main thing is it relies on constants. And with like the world is not a constant uh, human decisions are not constant in like the environment is always changing and uh, what what might um, what might be here at, in existence today 20 years from now will be totally different and uh, using economics to uh, sort of like explain climate change or uh, or say will be safe uh, because because of technology or because the 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 market will uh, will will like w solve the problem for us uh, is just false because things are changing at an exponentially larger rate and uh, we our our current models for for making predictions just don't account for this this regular change. Yeah, and the thing about externalities has always interested in me because it's it's one of the foundational principles of modern economics, regardless of what school you look into. The idea of an externality, essentially, by definition, externalities don't exist. So, any assessment by any and uh, by any economist you've ever read. In theory, there is no such thing as an externality. The the definition of externalities they don't exist. Uh, of course, they do because you can f hear one every five seconds if you listen to this program. But any any person, any listener out there can can think of an externality. Think about any cost that the oil industry puts on the public that is not currently worked into the price. That's the definition of an externality. An externality is an un unaccounted for cost. And the reason it doesn't exist is because you can't. Yeah, you can't account for it with 
an ec- with a normal economic theory. Yeah, in some cases you can't, and in some cases they just don't. So, for instance, yeah. like you could factor in, uh, you know, if you came up with a, for instance, here's a way that we could we could make economic predictions actually work for oil sands, is if you took the future cost of dealing with climate change and built that into the price of the gas nozzle immediately, directly. Here's what it's going to cost us. We have an economic. We here's our economic plan. Here's a liberal government economic plan for getting to zero carbon by 2080. Let's say, and that's that's a fairly realistic expectation as far as what we could expect from a a government not you know what i think is necessary or what i think is actually possible but let's say carbon neutral by 2080 uh you then factor in okay how much is that going to cost and then you force the companies to pay for that and put that price in the gas nozzle you've now just eliminated an externality the, until the day you do that all the economic models based on the oil industry are broken because they do not include that number, which means there's an externality, which in theory isn't supposed to exist. If they do exist, it means the model doesn't work. It doesn't reflect reality. And essentially what economists say and what, pe- what people say is is it, it becomes uh, a tautology. Well, they don't exist if they don't exist. So essentially, if we're not counting them, we don't have to count them because if there's not a law forcing us to count them, then they don't count, uh, which is nonsense. Um, so essentially, unless it was done by an environmentalist and it was showing you numbers that are drastically different than what you always hear, uh, no report on the economics of the oil sands is accurate because they all assume zero externalities and any person out there can think of one in the flash of a second. Um, so that renders them all obsolete and useless because they're all basically, and this is what I was getting. I think you were getting at with uh, Alex a little bit was an economist's favorite phrase, uh, is all else being equal. Well, all else is pretty much never equal, um, which means at best, you guys are all really good, well-educated guessers at best. Uh, So I would have to concur with that thought, Alex. Uh, Sabina? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that that do study this, it's a lot of theory and it's a lot of theory and it's a lot of variables equal to equal, you know, and and when you... I, I can't even talk about it. I get so angry because, I mean, there is environmental economics that is coming out right now. And, and a lot of people say, well, the market or the theory actually does take in for externalities because um, people end up paying for that. And even if even if the gas company was to pay for was to pay for um, its environmental damages, it will increase the price of oil. And which will then it'll end up being the consumer that ultimately pays for that environmental externality, whether it be the whether it's included within the oil company's price or whether it's included because of a government cleanup or right. You know, and through and that is what people dollars. say, but that's by definition in, inaccurate yeah. because the entire the definition of an externality is something you've been able to externalize. It's a cost you've been able to externalize. Mm-hmm. So when the public pays for a cleanup through taxpayer dollars and it doesn't go through the price at the no- nozzle, that is something that is a cost of oil that has been externalized from mm-hmm. the cost of oil. Meaning that that is by definition an externality, something that isn't supposed to exist for traditional economics to function. So you've been you've been lied to in slap twice not not you specifically i mean the public has yeah. been um <laughs> and also every economics student one of my favorite things was uh, we were studying we were studying like behavioral psychology and the 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 professor showed us this this really funny thing where it's like how many people think this is really really lo- wrong and it was I, I it was just something that anybody that could see it thought it was really wrong and uh, then he showed us statistics of different people with different backgrounds who thought this was wrong. And no, 90% of economic students didn't think it was wrong. And they're just like, we're breeding. And this, is, this isn't this is really business schools. It's economics that are breeding sociopaths. It's not even business. It's 
Yeah, I mean, you have a, a complete model where they define rationality as the increase of monetary value, as like always continuing to increase monetary value, and that's defined as rational in economics, and that's, I don't know. Yeah. To me, that's so. so well, these, these are some of the things that I that I wanted to do a better job of getting into in our in my part one of my series, and we, and we'll come back to it. And I, I think I mentioned on the show, but with Stefan, I'm just go when when I'm sort of everything's back in gear. We're going to come back and revisit that series, and we'll do it again. But these are a lot of those themes where, you know, people don't realize, you know, how completely not just like untrustworthy, but this can't possibly be accurate. Uh, a lot of the economics reporting that comes out and a lot of it is confirmation bias. And then the other point that you were getting on was just the idea that uh, essentially by working through these numbers, you're providing a way to remove people's uh, sense of humanity from decision-making because you're making it all about math and numbers. And this is the exact same thing to get hyper-psychological uh, that was done during the, I forget the name of the experiments, but there were experiments done after World War II to see if you, uh, essentially there was a study, and someone jump in if they know what the name of the study was, but it's done in first year psych classes. And it was an American uh, psychologist who wanted to find out what was what was so wrong with the German people that they were so uh, susceptible to being uh, corralled by someone like Hitler. And oh, so you they mean stir- the prison experiments, the Stanford prison. No, no, the the lab coat one. Oh. So what they did was they uh, they were doing going to do a control group in uh, the U.S. and then they were going to go to Germany. And so the the American study was supposed to be the control group for normal people, and then they were going to go to Germany and do the same study and fi- and see if they could a- figure out what was wrong with the Germans that they were so susceptible to this dictator and, and bloodlust. Uh, and the the study, you know, I'm sure you've already guessed, never made it to Germany because what they discovered immediately was that people are incredibly. Uh, uh, it, it, people you would be shocked by, pretty much everybody, nobody pretty much is immune to it, uh, affected by perceptions of authority. And what they, essentially what it was was they had people who were just actors. They were just hired actors or or, or, or pretty, people who were in on the study dressing up in lab coats and pretending. And they had simulations where people who were supposed to be – so they'd pull people off the street, hire them to be testers. Uh, to test these subjects but the subjects were really actors and the actual subject was the person hired to be the tester and what they would do is the people in lab coats would order them to uh, read uh, trivia questions to the person uh, who was the actor slash uh, subject of these tests and whenever the actor slash subject of these tests got an answer wrong they were to shock them with electric volt and every time they got it wrong they'd turn the voltage up in some cases people would fake heart attacks in some cases they could see the subject in some cases they wouldn't it didn't make any difference the idea that someone behind you in a perception of perceived authority, in this case, a lab coat, uh, ordered you to do something unhumane and cruel, and in some cases, results in basically murdering someone, that something like 96% of people conceded to the perceived authority and went along with it no matter what. And, and the cur- cur- analogy here I'm trying to draw, and I'll throw back to you, Sabina, was just that, and I, I see economics, uh, economic theory in a lot of ways playing out in a similar thing, which is that it provides us this cold data sheet type analysis of the real life that allows us to make completely inhumane decisions because it looks a certain way on a graph and it removes the humanity from that decision and removes you from the accountability of the consequences of your actions. Uh, back to Sabina. No, I just I just wanted to to just say a little bit a little thing about that uh, lab lab code experiment as you called it. The best part about it is that every single person that was administering these shock tests uh, felt the lowest, the complete lowest form of the shock on themselves. So they knew exactly how much the lowest form would hurt, and they and they would still crank up the volume and crank up the volume when a person of authority was telling them, okay. It's fine. Continue. Don't worry. Like it's fine, and, yeah. and they would just completely take their word for, 
for for its face value just because they had this lab coat on which yeah. yeah, and there's and there's all sorts of ethics laws now that would prevent this type yeah. of study being done, but uh, there were not at the time, so they were done. And there's actually videotape of these experiments. You can actually go and watch this. It's in black and white, but you can watch it. Probably you can probably find it on YouTube. Uh, videos of the, these experiments, and in some cases, people would, uh, you know, be able to see the person, the supposed the actor slash test subject through like a pane of glass. The person would stop responding, uh, fake a heart attack, stop responding, fake playing playing dead. And the and they would ask, well, I should stop. Shouldn't someone go check on them? And the person would be like, nope, keep up with the test. And so the these people would be just by the perceived uh, per, uh, authority of someone wearing an un, unnamed person in a in just a white lab coat uh, to be able to continue to shock an unresponsive for all they know dead body uh, based simply on on just no threats, just just peer pressure, and you know you won't be paid for the study, and this will ruin our tests. You have to like just just general just social pressure. Uh, we're able to commit horrifying acts. Should let us know about. Uh, you know, we need to watch out for humans. We need a counterbalance to to humans because humans can be dangerous creatures as much as they can be amazing. And and, and the more we understand about that, the better we can deal with it. Uh, final out, comment from Alex. Look out for Donald Trump is what this study shows yes. us. <laughs> yes. Uh, perceived authority indeed. Yes, he is one and uh, and that's part of why he's so dangerous. Uh, any final comments before I just do my little news update and we go? That was my final comment. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So uh, just as a super quick wrap-up, I'm not going to get into a ton of detail. If you're somebody who has my contact information and you wish to know more, you're, you're, I will I will answer questions uh, if you uh, wish. Uh, but just because I know the people who listen to the, the after show are like super hardcore fans and I kind of consider you our family, I'll just let you know that un, uh, unfortunately, the reason I was off was because I was per, uh, diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I've just received a report, and this is uh, information for the folks in the room as well, that I went for a test. They did some major surgery, and I've been off with uh, recovering from surgery for a while now. Uh, I got a report from my no assessment that after the surgery, I'm 100% cancer-free. Yay! Uh, However, there is a downside. Of course, there's a downside, uh, which is that they're pretty much sure it's genetic, which means that I'm basically at risk of getting a different cancer again for the rest of my life. So I have to, uh, essentially, I'm going to be screened constantly for the rest of my life. Uh, And there's a chance and this is the worst thing and the thing i kind of want to complain a little bit about because it's kind of like getting in trouble for something you didn't even get to enjoy doing uh you know like when you get punished from something from your parents they're like but i didn't even steal the sandwich out of the you know lunch at least if i you know at least if i had to do the punishment i should have at least gotten to do the crime uh, which is that uh, because it's genetic i may have to do chemo anyway <laughs> as a preventative measure so if i'm uh, if i'm gone again you know why again it has nothing to do with the show whatsoever and i and i wasn't going to put it on the main show because it extremely doesn't have anything to do with the main show uh but just you know for so people are in the know because i don't generally be mysterious and uh, as stefan was insinuating the first week as i was away it would take a, a hell of a you know a tank to get me away from this program every week so there was in fact a tank in my path uh that's how significantly it was to keep me away so uh, uh that's why i was gone hopefully i'm back uh, as far as anybody can tell i'm fine now although i may still have to do some more nonsense which is going to really really